Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, let's just talk about right now um, the the unfolding of time, and I I I'm always sort of reminded of a a, a review uh, from the the first uh, Deep Space Nine Star Trek pilot. Um, I read a I read a just a a summary of of what the episode was about. I didn't actually see, see the episode, but in in the review they said that the the crew of the Enterprise is met by these aliens who live outside of time. And, and they're fascinated. They say, they say to the, the, the human beings, what's it like not to know what's about to happen next? That must, that must be so interesting. <laughs> and so, you know, so, so here we're sort of like, it, it, just to think that there could be an alternative to not knowing what's about to happen next. And, and by the way, God deliberately designed reality in a way that we don't know what's about to happen next. I mean, that was by design. And in fact, it says that that's one of the reasons why God doesn't want us to engage in fortune telling. So, you know, there's, um, there's a Torah basis to astrology, and there's, a, there's sort of a Kabbalistic form of astrology. But that, that's more... Um, or not more, but that's exclusively to understand that when you're born, what sort of like personality traits you might have in order to have insight so that you can fix yourself. It's not meant to predict the future at all. So for that reason, going to say a, um, a palm reader or anyone who's predicting the future for you is considered usher. It's, it's against the Torah. And the reason is, is because God doesn't want you to know. <laughs> God doesn't want you to know in order that you should have faith in him, right? So that's, that's again, just something that's sort of a check and balance in terms of encouraging your own amuna, your own um, attachment to God on this level. So, so, but this at the same time is exceedingly perplexing and confounding and it can cause a lot of pain to a, to a person. In fact, it's one of sort of like the, the central aspects of the human condition, not knowing what's about to happen next. Um, I know that, uh, you know, if, I don't know if any of you are familiar with um, chess, but sometimes when you play chess, there's, there's a move, if you play enough chess, um, especially if you're not great at it like, like I am, <laughs> um, there, there's one that... A move that I always love. I love it when I'm able to do it, and I'm always like confounded when, when it happens to me, which is that you're focused on one part of the chessboard for like many, 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 many moves. And then all of a sudden, someone takes like a bishop or something like that. A bishop moves diagonally, and it can move across the entire board. Someone all of a sudden takes a, a bishop, slides it across the board, and now there's a whole new player right in the heart of the action that you didn't even know was on the board, really. And now it's a completely different game all at once. And you never saw it coming. You never saw it coming, although it was right there all along. But it's, it's a total shocker. So I don't know if you've experienced that moment, but whenever you do, it's sort of like, what? You know? So, so life is like that. Life is like a giant chess game. Um, in this respect, where there are tons of pieces on the board that you've completely forgotten about. You know, so for instance, let's say, you know, let's say you walk into a coffee shop, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden the guy who you went to third grade with shows up 
And they're like, you start talking. It's like, that's like the bishop being moved, you know, slid diagonally across the board. All of a sudden that piece shows up and they say, oh, you know what? Do, do you know, so I, I know someone who would be great for you. And the next thing, you thought you're getting a cup of coffee. The next thing you know, someone's shown up with, you know, your marriage partner. You know, so you don't, you don't know. You don't know how these things work. You forget all the chess pieces on the board, but God is thoroughly mindful of all of the different elements in your life that are going on and sees them all, right? Another beautiful related sort of aspect to that is that you have to understand that, you know, the, the, um, the Carlina Rebbe said one time, he said, I wished that I loved the highest Jew, right? Meaning spiritually speaking, I wish I loved the highest Jew as much as God loves the lowest Jew, right? So, so where does that great love that God has for us come from? Where, where is that sourced? And one of the places that it's sourced is, is the fact that God can't look at you without seeing every good thing that you've ever done in your entire life all at once. Every time God looks at you, he sees every good thing you've ever done in your entire life all at once. In other words, that's the prism that he sees you through. And I can guarantee you, there have been tons of things that every single one of us have done that have been amazing, beautiful things that you don't even remember that you did. You literally don't even remember that you did. You know, I, I mentioned it the other week, but it just, it, it always uh, astounds me. The, the um, Mayor Anayim, the Chernobyl Rebbe, one of the greatest tzaddikim, and that was one of, that, that, that Sefer is one of our greatest books, that I was told that, that the, the, the Masorah, the tradition about that book, is that it's all, the only thing that's included in that Sefer are divrei Torah, words of Torah, that the Chernobyl Rebbe didn't remember saying. <laughs> and this is considered one of the all-time classic holy books, right? Because the, the, the logic was that if you remembered saying it, maybe there's like a little bit of ego attached to it. So these are all the things. So, so again, all the things that we've done that we don't even remember that we did. But God remembers, just like the, the pieces on the chessboard. Like it's, it's always clear to God. Okay. So we're talking about going through time, and we're talking about the fact that we don't know what's going to happen next, and how that can, you know, be hard for us, and everything like that. And, you know, we're always kind of um, dealing with two aspects simultaneously. We're dealing with our own lives, so that's sort of like on the microcosmic level, if you will, which is, you know, my own personal timeline. But at the same time, we're also simultaneously, since we're part of the Jewish people, part of humanity as a whole, we're also dealing with humanity's march toward the redemption of the world. So that's sort of the, the, the macro timeline. And both of them run parallel to each other. Okay? Because the, the idea is that, you know, like the, the great bumper sticker, one of my favorite bumper stickers is, you know, think globally, act locally. Right? So, and, or, or like the great Gandhi quote, which I'm paraphrasing, but you know, be, you be the change that you want to see in the world. Or, or put another way, fix yourself and you'll fix the world. Because each person is a microcosm of the entire world. 
So, so the greatest, you know, the greatest avoda, the greatest work is not to sort of clobber someone else and tell them all the things that they're doing wrong and get them to do, to get their act together. But the greatest work that you can do is to actually fix yourself. And then if you really do fix yourself, or if, if people perceive that you're taking the work of fixing yourself seriously, they will be inspired to want to do the same. And that will be the greatest inspiration for other people to change if they see how seriously you're taking that work, right? And again, when we say how seriously you're taking that work, I always remember that Oscar Wilde quote, which is, life is too important to be taken seriously. <laughs> Meaning to say that, that the, the best way to be serious isn't always to be serious. You know what I mean? You have to have a bit of a sense of humor or a very large sense of humor in the adventures of seriousness, right? Because otherwise people just like, they just can't run away from you faster, basically. <laughs> That's just the bottom line. It's sort of like, you know, just give me a break. I gotta do something else. What do you have to do? Anything else, anything else, really, you know, I'm open, I'm open, you know, <laughs> including nothing, including, you know. so anyway, um, but again, this is all trial and error, you know what I mean, it's all trial and error, I mean, I remember after, you know, arriving at these, uh, uh, the, the thoughts of just sort of like, like, the Torah, God, like, of course, you know, you know, but, and then looking at, you know, people that I knew who were all like, you know, stellar intellectuals and being like, it's so obvious. Why don't they get it? You know, and this is, you know, meanwhile, it had taken me years and years and years and years and years and years and years to think through every variation to arrive at it, you know. But once, you know, it's obvious to you, you think that, oh, at that moment it becomes obvious to everyone else. That is, I would say, classically bad math, right? That just, that just does, that is, that doesn't work, okay? So, so you have to, again, make your focus at that point when you quote-unquote get it, your focus should remain getting it even more or being even better as opposed to then just sort of like seeing that as an invitation to pick up a club and start beating other people, you know, because it, that, it, it just doesn't work, you know. Um, okay, so, so again, we've got this, this amazing parallel where, you know, on the one hand, we're sort of miniatures of the universe, but very much focused in our own personal details and, and, and desires and things like this. And then we have this parallel track where you've got really the, the entirety of humanity going on and, um, and the history of the world as it sort of speeds toward its, its, its completion and its perfection. Um, so in looking at um, Parshas Pinchas, uh, I, I noticed a theme running through it that sort of like kind of excited me because I was like, wow, it's right there, look at it. And, and so let me, let me just run through this theme. Uh, you have, you have, without going through the whole story of Pinchas, which is, you know, one of the most amazing stories in the whole Torah, without going through it, he, he saves the Jewish people. And Pinchas is not a Kohen, right? He's not, that's our sort of like the, we use the word priest, but that's kind of a bit of a, bit of a confusing term. 
you know, he's the the the, the Kahanim were the ones who served in in the in the Mishkan and in the Beis Hamikdash in the Holy Temple. So they were the ones who were sort of like the conduits, you know, you know, bringing up all the prayers and and devotion up to the next level. But at the same time, you know, we don't believe in intermediaries. So you know, they it's not like our prayers went through them, but they. They they were very crucial in terms of sort of like um, keeping this this portal between heaven and earth open, and maintaining that portal between heaven and earth. Um, so they were holy maintenance professionals, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, the thing is, is that in order to be a kohen, you your father has to have been a kohen. Okay, that's how it works. And if your father was not a kohen then you're not a Kohen. And there's a 100% correlation between those two things. Father Kohen, you're a Kohen. Father not a Kohen, you're not a Kohen. That's it. Just, it's black and white. Um, however, however, Pinchas begins by not being a Kohen, and it's a little bit technical why he wasn't a Kohen, by the way. But I don't want to go through the details of it, but he was not a Kohen. And then after he does this incredible act, saves the Jewish people, God says, you know what? As a reward for this, I'm making you a Kohen. Now that's, that in itself is astounding because it violates the entire rules of transmission. It just, it doesn't work. But because God wanted it, it absolutely worked. Now, by the way, without, without going into it further, but maybe we'll get to it a little bit later. I'm just going to tell you super shorthand. According to the Zohar, what happened was, just on a here and now level, the souls of Nadav and Avihu, who were Kahanim, and they were 100% Kahanim, and they were going to be the successors, by the way, of Moshe and Aaron, right? And were considered on some level even greater than Moshe and Aaron, if you can fathom that. But they, they, they died young in, in a, you know, a tragic situation. You can look that up. But according to the Zohar, the souls of Nadav and Avihu flew into Pinchas. Okay, so this is a very Kabbalistic, mystical idea. But at this point, he actually had the soul of a Kohen. So if you say, well, how can God make him a Kohen? Well, he, at, at that point, he really did have the soul of a Kohen. But anyway, that's, that's an aside. The more important idea here is the fact that Pinchas could not be a Kohen, and then God made him a Kohen. Like, let's just talk, let's focus on the simplicity of it, okay? So that's case number one in the Torah, in this week's Parsha. Case number two is Slavchad and his daughters. So Slavchad has five daughters, and the five daughters are all super righteous. And in fact, it's, it's how do we know how righteous they were? Because they're listed in one order once, and they're listed in another order the second time they're mentioned. And so the commentators explain the reason why they're in one order once and another order the, the second time is because each was much more righteous, each was more righteous than the next. So there was no way of listing them top to bottom because they were all so righteous. Right? So that's like a beautiful thing. So, so now remember, we're at the chapter right now, we're at, in, in terms of the, 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 the narrative of the, of the Torah, where the Jewish people are right on the border of entering into Israel. Okay? And so the idea of 
who's going to get which piece of land, right, according to the tribes and how the land is going to be divided and everything like that and the families within the tribes. This is a very, very relevant topic. And we've had the laws of transmission because we're talking about generation to generation. We're talking about the flow of time right now, right? We just mentioned about Pinchas, the, 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 his father, who was, you know, not a Kohen, all of a sudden, his son is a Kohen. So just understand the theme we're working with. Transmission from generation to generation, okay? So the daughters now, right up until now, the, the, the laws of inheritance from a parent to a child have been spelled out in the Torah. And there's no mention, what if there are no sons? Because normally speaking, the firstborn son gets a double inheritance, and so there's a, the whole laws of inheritance and, you know, if there's no son, then who does it go to next? Or if there are a bunch of sons, how is it divided? But there's no mention of daughters in, in this scenario. So the question is, here you have Slavchad, and you have five daughters. There are no sons. Do the daughters get an inheritance of the land of Israel at all? It's, it's, it's not obvious. Not only is it not obvious in the text of the Torah, it's not obvious to Moshe. They come up to Moshe and they say, Moshe, what's the deal? There's only five daughters. Do do we get a portion of the land or not? And you know what Moshe's response is? I have to ask God. (laughs) I mean, that's how big a question it was. And Moshe asks God and God says, of course, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, they get an inheritance. So again we see a very surprising aspect in terms of the unfolding of generations right now, the unfolding of time. It would appear on the most superficial level that the daughters would not have an inheritance. And yet the halacha, the Torah law is, they absolutely do have an inheritance. Okay? Now we have the third example within the Parsha, which is probably the most, um, the most obvious the most clear example of what I'm talking about, which is the transmission from one generation to the other, which is that Moshe Rabbeinu right now realizes, you know, he's been told explicitly, you're not going to enter into the land, which means that he understands that his, his tenure, if you will, as a leader of the Jewish people is up. And now, as, 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 as is proper for for, for him to do at the time, he's considering who should his successor be. And there's something very poignant and beautiful about the fact that he wants it to be his son. And we really haven't heard about his son much since like his son was born, since the birth of his son. We haven't really heard about him. And, and you know, there's a whole world of, of, of what's, what we don't know in the text, which is, what their relationship was, and, and everything like that. But the fact that Moshe, you know, who you know, was the humblest person who's ever lived, and who's not driven by the fact that, oh, we've got to keep up the family name, you know, you've got to succeed me, like, that, that can't be an element of this. I mean, he saw something obviously incredible in his son, that felt that his son was really the, the proper choice. He prays to God, it should... You know, the, the, the prayer that he says is, is that the, the Jewish people should not be like sheep without a shepherd. 
right? We, we need to be, we need to have a leader. And God says, you know what? It's not going to be your son. It, it's going to be Yoshua, you know? And so that's, that's intense. That's intense. Um, and so here you see, again, the transmission from one generation to the other. And again, it happens in a surprising way. So just to review, we have three transmissions going on and three very unexpected results each of the times. Pinchas' father is not a Kohen, and yet he becomes a Kohen. There's no um, allowance that's clear at all in the Torah that if you have only daughters, that the daughters should get an inheritance. And yet, that absolutely is the, 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 the Torah law. And then you have Moshe wanting his son to be his successor, and it turns out, no, no, no. God wants Yeshua to be his successor. And so, there you, there you have it. Okay. So, I think that this says quite a bit about our lives and what our expectations are and what, how, how God has sort of scripted, if you will, the, the story of history and the story of reality. Um, and as it marches toward the redemption of the world, because we're always reading Parshas Pinchas, like in the three weeks. We know the three weeks is that special period of time. By the way, we have another period of three weeks, you should know. And those three weeks go from Rosh Hashanah to Shmini Atzeres, Simchas Torah Shmini Atzeres. That's another three weeks. So we have sort of like this sad three weeks, and we have this very glorious three weeks of the high holidays, as we often call them, right? But you should know that the Navi, the prophet Zechariah, says that the 17th of Tammuz, which is the beginning of the three weeks, right? that's when we worship the golden calf and the, the tablets were smashed, and also where the first breach, the first hole in the walls around the base of Migdash, the holy temple was made. That's the 17th of Tammuz. The 17th of Tammuz says Zechariah is going to be a holiday. And of course we know that it all culminates in Tishabav, the 9th of Av, um, which is also going to be a very great holiday. So right now we have sort of like three, sort of like very celebratory weeks, right? In the beginning of Tishrei, and we've got these three weeks which sort of parallel them, offset them. But these three weeks are going to be great holidays as well. You know, that's the, that's the destiny of these days. And um, so we're reading Parshas Pinchas, which is talking about the march through time, and it's appropriate because as we head toward Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av is sort of like a case in point of the evolution that the world is going to go through. You can see it just in terms of understanding the nature of Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. So right now, the ninth of Av is the saddest day of the year. It's, it's the only 24-hour fast day, or maybe it's 25 hours, whatever it is, that... Uh, in addition to Yom Kippur, right? All the other fast days in the year are all daytime fasts, just from sunup to sundown, right? Or nightfall, whatever it is. But Tisha B'Av is like heavy. That's, 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 that's a heavy fast. You know, and if you're only fasting, besides Yom Kippur, if you're only fasting one time in the year, it's got to be Tisha B'Av. It's, it's like, it's very important, you know? Um, so, you know, the Zohar points out that uh, 
you know, we have uh, 613 commandments. So we have 248 positive commandments, things that we're supposed to do, and 365 things that we're supposed to refrain from. Lotases, we call them, right? So, you know, there's an obvious parallel between the fact that there are 365 days in the year and 365 thou shalt nots, if you will, right? So how do they link up? Well, I've never seen an, exha- an exhaustive list, but the Zohar does point out that you know which mitzvah, that, that thing that you're not supposed to do, correlates with the day of Tisha B'av? Eating from the Gid Hanasha, which is, which is the, that, that vein in the thigh um, that, that you're not supposed to eat from. And it's actually one of the 613 commandments. So that, that might seem like totally esoteric and like, what? How do those two things link up? Remember, Tisha B'av is the day of just like calamity of the Jewish people. The first base of Mikdash is destroyed. The second base of Mikdash is destroyed. The Spanish Inquisition is, is ordered, right? You know, they say that one of the theories that Columbus was actually a Jew is that he left Spain on Tisha B'av. Right? That's, that's, they're all, you know, World War One, which any historian will tell you, rolled directly into World War Two, because the Treaty of Versailles was such a disaster. Right? World War One started on Tisha B'Av, which means the entire Holocaust started on Tisha B'Av, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you make that connection. And, and other tragedies as well. However, simultaneously, and we're saying here that in understanding Tisha B'Av, you understand the entire unfolding of the order of the world. Because on the other hand, we're told that Tisha B'Av is the day that Mashiach is born. Right? So the great Redeemer is born on Tisha B'Av. And, and that might be a literal thing. His birthday actually might be on the 9th of Av. Or, as I'd like to suggest as well on a different level, or perhaps this is Pshat, I don't know, that all of the fasting and all of the work that we do on ourselves and everything like that, that that creates the birth of Mashiach. In other words, it's born on Mashiach because we transform the energy of the world through all the holy work that we're doing in terms of trying to fix things. And that creates Mashiach, right? Or maybe the two go together. You know, I, I don't know. But, but Tisha B'Av itself is going to be a very, very great holiday. And in fact, one of the coolest things in the world, there, there's so many cool things about all these things, but, but just one thing, and then I'll tell you the thing that I, I was about to tell you. But whatever, the word galos, which means exile, and geula, which means redemption, are basically the same word, right? They're like two sides to the same coin. Exile and redemption in Hebrew are almost the same word. One of the very cool things is that the word geula, which means redemption, has the letter Aleph in it, right? Aleph, of course, is the number one, because it's the first letter of the alphabet, and it stands for Hashem, because God is one. So, so, you know, in other words, even in the darkness, God is there too, but in, in, in the light, God's presence is revealed. So geula, redemption, has the letter Aleph in it, you know? Um, but... But the way the calendar has been sort of like divinely arranged, whatever day Pesach falls on, meaning if you have your Seder, say, on a Friday night, right? 
different years will fall out on different days. But whatever um, day, the first day of Pesach falls out on, is the day that year that Tisha B'Av will fall out on. And of course, Pesach is the headquarters of redemption. It's leaving Egypt. And like the Zohar says that all future redemptions are modeled on our leaving Egypt. So in other words, M- Mashiach basically is, 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 is sourced from Pesach. So whatever day Pesach falls on, that year Tisha B'Av also falls on. That's an amazing thing. But here's the thing that I wanted to tell you, is that um, there's, uh, there's something that we say, and it's, and it's something that I, I'm, I'm having a, uh, uh, an increased appreciation of. It's um, sort of like a little, little discussed, really, little talked about aspect of the davening. It's called tachunun. Um, tachunun is something that they're, they're uh, well, without going into the, the whole lengths of it, after your Shemona Esrei, which is the heart of the prayer service, you know, the standing prayer, the silent prayer, um, there's, a, there's something that you read where you, you, it's the equivalent like in the Torah when you read about great leaders like Moshe or Abraham or whatever it is, where in times of like, like crises, they, they'd fall down on their face and they'd beseech God. They'd just like prostrate themselves. They'd fall down on their face and just, you know, it was a, just a, an act of just sort of like desperation, just giving up everything to God, right? So we actually do a version of that. We don't lie on our stomachs and everything like that. But, but we put our head down on our forearm after, after, after the davening and we just say, you know, please God, you know, and the, the, the amazing thing is, what is it that we read at that moment? Um, the first thing that we talk about is when David and Melech, King David, went to Gad, because David and Melech had, had done something wrong. He had counted the people, and you're not supposed to count, you're not supposed to count each other with numbers, like, 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 it, 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 it and it, it, basically because people are not numbers. And if you look through history, um, one of the first things that, that, that dictators do is just like turn their population into a concept, right? Because once they're a concept, they've robbed them of their humanity. And then they can do like the worst acts to mi- literally millions of people. Because at that point, they're just dealing with a concept. They're not dealing with, with human beings anymore. Right? So when you turn people into numbers, you, you turn them into concepts, and then you're capable of doing the worst things. Okay? Like, um, we were talking about Matt Seitung not long ago, and how he, he talked about, you know, in enacting his, his um, communist revolution in China, that um, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Right? Um, okay, that's very nice, except we're talking about the death of millions and millions of people. We're not talking about making an omelet. You know, so you understand what I'm saying. So David Amelech, uh, however we're to understand this, since David Amelech is the soul of Mashiach, right? So however we're able to understand this, he did a census of the Jewish people and he counted them. And the Navi God, the prophet, said to, said to him, you know, that, that's a problem, right? 
So, so, so David Melech knew that that something was going to come down, and he was sort of given a choice, you know. Like, do you want it to come from the hands of God, or do you want it to come from the hands of people? And David Melech said, "I want it to come from the hands of God, right?" And so the first thing that we do when we say Tachanun is we put our head down on our on our forearm, right, like like this, sort of like basically the equivalent of just falling on your face, right? And and we quote that moment where 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 David Melech says to Hashem, "You know what? Um, I want it to come from your hand and not from human hands." You know, and. Uh, so if you think about it, it's sort of like, you know, it says in Pirkei Avos that everything is given on collateral. In other words, whatever you own in your life is a gift, right? You don't even own it. It's just being lent to you, basically. It's given on collateral. And then it says, a hand writes in the book. Meaning to say, every single thing is like recorded, like very, very precisely. Like, there's, like, very excellent bookkeeping that, that goes on, right? And, um, you know, the idea that after a Shmona Esrei, there's this moment of reckoning, because what are we talking about at that moment? David Melch has done something wrong, and God tells him that, and David Melch says, you know what? Let it come from the hands of God because he'll be more merciful than, than human beings will be. So can you imagine, like, just in terms of us appreciating the moment of Tachanun, and, and, and I'm, believe me, I'm talking to myself also, understanding that, okay, the hand is now writing in the book. There is an accounting that's about to take place. Now I've done my Shemona Esrei. I've certainly done things wrong. And you just throw yourself down on the ground and you're like, please, God, please be merciful on me, you know, like, it's so to speak, like the judgment is coming down at that moment, you know, so it's like, it's, it's intense, it's intense, actually, but if you know that that's actually the dynamics, that's what's going on right then, then you can appreciate that moment more and really, really have kavana, really be able to, to maximize that opportunity at that moment. Okay, so on holidays, we don't say tachanah. Right, like on, like on, for instance, on Sukkot, you're not saying Tachanun, right? On Hanukkah, you're not saying Tachanun, because it's a happy day. So on happy days, you don't do it. So you want to hear something amazing to get back to the point? On Tisha B'Av, we don't say Tachanun, because it's a holiday. <laughs> so in other words, it's not just what's so, like, incredible about this, and you really have to just, just concentrate for a moment to appreciate the, the enormity of this point. It's not just that we say, oh, in future times, Tisha B'Av is going to be a great holiday because the prophet said so. We're not saying that. We're saying that the actual holiday aspect of it, not saying Tachanun, which we only do in a revealed way on actual holidays, (coughs) is already in place right now. In other words, that foundation stone of Tisha B'Av actually being a transformative holiday is already in place. And we're already behaving, excuse me, we're already behaving in that way right now. In other words, part of the redemption of the world has already been revealed. Do you understand? 
Because that aspect of the day is already in place and is the halacha right now. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because our tradition is, is that Mashiach can come at any moment, any day. Right? That's why I was saying, I was sharing before, but I say it again. I always get like a little bit slightly uncomfortable when, when like people share with me, do you see what's going on in the Middle East? Like this correlates with this um, Haftorah or whatever it is. And clearly this is, it's a sign of Mashiach. Any day Mashiach can come, right? Like you get a circular, you know, like men in deodorant, five for a dollar. That, Everything's a sign of Mashiach because it, because it can come in any day. You don't need some apocalyptic headline to tell you that it's going to come because it's already been baked into the fabric of reality. So any day it can come. Now, if it gives you more amuna and more faith to say, wow, this correlates with that, that's quite amazing. And it is amazing when those things happen, and it does give people faith, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you shouldn't need that in order to have faith. You understand? Because this is the inevitability of, of, of the, what God put into place from the very start. God didn't set out to create a broken world that was going to remain broken. That wasn't the divine intent. From the very outset, the world has been unfolding toward perfection. From the very outset. Right? And that's, that is going to happen no matter what. Now, it can either happen in a beautiful way, where we create through our own spiritual refinement and loving each other and helping each other, where we create a vessel for that light, and then it happens today in a beautiful way. Or that higher dimension of light, which is going to come down no matter what, can sort of crash through this reality and manifest itself in horrible, terrible wars and things like that. And then eventually settle down to this era of perfection. But what is that transition point going to be? Is it going to be really smooth? It, it, it can be really smooth if, if we're on the level. Or is it going to be sort of like a contradiction to like the state of this world where it has to assert itself and, 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 and force its way down? Right? So that's, that's, those are the two sort of like scenarios how this next era unfolds. Right? But either way, it's happening. So again, let's put all these ideas together and, 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 and get to it. So... So we said that in Parshas Pinchas, that, that this is always read toward, during the three weeks. And the three weeks is that march toward Tisha B'av, right? And Tisha B'av represents sort of the dual nature of the world. It represents the headquarters of all the tragedy, but at the same time, it's the day that Mashiach is going to be born. So it represents the march toward the perfection of the world simultaneously. And that, the as, that an aspect of that perfection, not saying Tachanun, has already been revealed. It's already in place. Right? 
And we said that in Pinchas, we see three examples as we march toward Tisha B'Av, as time unfolds in our own personal lives, that in each instance, like for instance, Pinchas, his father's not a Kohen, but somehow he becomes a Kohen. Slavchad, it's not clear that the inheritance should go to the daughters, but then we find out, yeah, it goes to the daughters. Moshe wants his son to succeed him, but no, 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 it's going to be Yeshua. Right? That in each instance in our lives, now let's just make it very, very personal right now, in our own lives and also in the history of the world, we ask ourselves so many times, how am I going to get to the next level? How am I going, how is my life going to progress to the next place? How is it going to happen? And it would seem like in each of these instances, we hit a wall. Pinchas can't become a Kohen, right? Right? The daughters can't get an inheritance. It seems to hit a wall each time. And yet what happens? In an amazing, surprising way, the transition actually does take place. And we do get to the next place. And that is the destiny of the world, that it will arrive at its perfection. But it's going to happen in a, in a way that's very surprising. In fact, the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin in Chalik, which is talking about Mashiach and Messianic times and everything like that, says that Mashiach will only come at a time where there's a hefsek hadas, which means a break in understanding. Like a hefsek means sort of like like, for instance, you're supposed to make a bracha, and then you do the thing that you're making a bracha on. So you say, if you have an apple, bracha tashem, you know, and then you eat the apple. You don't say the bracha, then put down the apple, and you go to the supermarket, to the movies, come back, eat the apple. No, it's like that's called a hefsekadas. You sort of made a separation between the two things. But interestingly, the Gomorrah tells us that Mashiach will come at a time of Hefzik Adas, meaning to say, you think you know what's going to happen next? It's going to happen in a completely surprising way. Adas means knowledge. It's going to defy your knowledge. And that's getting back to the idea of life being a chessboard. If your life is a chessboard, imagine what the history of the world is. I mean, how like expansive a chessboard is that? Where all of a sudden, like, you know, this family moves in, or that nation moves in, or that army moves in. And this line that's been developing for hundreds or thousands of years that you don't even know about, all of a sudden, like, manifests. This is, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is Hefzik Adas. You know, the revelation of surprising elements that are all there. They're all there right now. So, so I want to I show you how you see. So, so what I'd like to suggest is that in each one of these transmissions that we've talked about, it's, it's at least one way of understanding it, is understanding that it's the drive toward Mashiach. And that the inevitability of its happening. And if you go through each of the three instances, you can see a hint of Mashiach in each one of these instances. In terms of Pinchas becoming a Kohen, our tradition is Pinchas zu Eliyahu. 
Pinchas is Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu announces the arrival of Mashiach. Right? More on a, on a, 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 a more Kabbalistic level, you see um, by the daughters of Slavchad that you should know that in Tanakh, in, in, in the entirety of the Torah, there is a small version of every letter somewhere in Tanakh and a large version of every letter somewhere in Tanakh. By the account of Slavchad's daughters and their inheritance, you have the large final nun. Okay, so Rabbi Wolfson speaks about this, and he says that this nun correlates, nun is the number 50, and in terms of, you know, we have different paradigms of understanding like the, sort of the cosmic map, and one of the paradigms is understanding what we call the 50 gates, you know, of, of understanding. And nun is 50, is the number 50, which correlates with what we call the shar chamishim, the 50th gate. This is the highest level of understanding, which, which correlates with Mashiach, because this is sort of like the most sort of like clear understanding of, of God. Okay, so by Slavchad's daughters, you have the large final nun. And for Yehoshua taking over for Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Well, what does it mean to enter into Israel? Right? On, on, on one simple level, it means entering into the land. But we know that the Rambam lists, when he, when he puts down the criteria of who is Mashiach, like Mashiach has to meet these criteria. One of the, one of the um, criteria is that he will ingather all the exiles, the Jewish people from the four corners, and bring them into the land of Israel. So who is the one who brings the Jewish people into the land of Israel. It's not Moshe Rabbeinu. It's Yeshua. So again, you have a, a Mashiach element to that as well. So each one represents marching toward Mashiach, but arriving there in a surprising way. And I just want to finish up by, by, by talking about just something that, that's been just kind of staying in my head for a while. We mentioned it, but I, it just, it's, to me, it's just a very kind of beautiful construct. So, so, so to switch to physics for a moment, to Sir Isaac Newton, right? If you roll a ball, the ball eventually will stop moving, right? And the reason is because of friction. And this is... 100% of the time, okay? But if you were operating somehow in a frictionless environment, you could roll a ball and it will never stop moving, right? That's, you know, assuming it's not going to hit something, right? Let's just talk about a clear field. It will just keep on rotating around the world, actually, and never stop. That would be a ball operating in a frictionless environment. Now, let's just think about what the power of a mitzvah is for a moment, okay? What the, power, what the power is of a prayer for a moment. Now, the Talmud says that God created the Torah, or that the Torah existed 
974 generations before the world was created. Right? Because we know it was actually given in the 26th generation from Adam to Moshe, and 26 and 974 adds up to 1,000. And that 1,000 generations correlates with a line from, from the Tehillim, from the Psalms of David. Okay? So 974 generations before the world was created, the Torah existed. So what does that mean? So everyone tries to like figure out, what does that mean exactly? Well, it doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating around in outer space. That's, that's what it doesn't mean. Okay? What it, what it does mean is that God had a desire for the world. The Torah is God's, like as, as Rip Shlomo put it so beautifully one time, when you keep the Ten Commandments, you dream God's dreams and you pray God's prayers. Right? So the Torah itself is God's dreams, God's desire for the world. Okay? And what's so amazing is, God then took his desire for the world, his dreams for the world. He took that energy and he formed that energy into the world itself. Okay? So that means that the world itself is literally made out of Torah. And so kind of like if you were to actually be able to x-ray the world and see all the, the plumbing of the world, so to speak, you'd see that it's all the pathways of the world are arranged according to the mitzvot. And all the building blocks of the world are in sync with the mitzvot. Which is why if you keep the Torah, you become in harmony with the world itself. Because the world itself is made out of the Torah. Now with this in mind, with this in mind, when you do a mitzvah, the mitzvah keeps on going for generations and generations and generations and all eternity, because the mitzvah is operating in a frictionless environment. Because the mitzvah itself is a piece of Torah which is operating within a world that's made completely out of Torah. And so it never stops. And so the transmission from generation to generation never stops. And so our ability to get to the next place even amidst our failings, even amidst all the roadblocks that are put up, still, it never stops. And it gets to the next level, sometimes in a surprising way. But it always gets to the next level. Because that is the world itself, and that is the destiny of the world itself. So know that every prayer that you do is constantly in front of God, that God literally can't look at you without seeing every good thing that you've ever done in your entire life. Know that all of the chess pieces of your life, even the stuff, the people that you've forgotten about, the things that you've done, might not be in your mind. You may not even remember them, but God remembers them, and they remain on the table, right, for the good, right? And the tshuva, if you do tshuva, it knocks off the bad, so that's not there, right? Know that that exists on a historic level as well. Right? And know that that when you invest in goodness, when you assert yourself and you and you and you 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 you, you challenge yourself to be even better, that 
you are not only the beneficiary of it, and the world is not only the beneficiary of it, but is the beneficiary of it forever. That when you invest in goodness, you invest in eternity. You, you yourself become forever. You attach yourself to foreverness. And so, a lot of times, you may not necessarily see like um, the results of, of your actions, but like a snowball that's sort of like pushed down from the top of a snowy mountain, right? Over time, it gathers and it becomes a giant, giant, giant boulder. And that's the case with all of our deeds as well, right? They just keep on like attracting other good deeds from other people and this and that, and then they just become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it just snowballs, right? So, so Hashem should bless us to give us holy eyes to see that everything we do for the good is forever. Amen. And that we should really see Mashiach this year. Amen. Now for some questions and answers. Oh, I didn't complete that point. Okay, good. So, um, so yes. So, so how does how does uh, we said that there are 365 days in the year and 365 um, prohibitions in the Torah? And the Zohar says that eating from the Gita Nasha, this um, you know the sciatic nerve in the in the thigh correlates um, with Tisha B'av. Like, why would that be the case? And the answer is, is that remember when we got the mitzvah not to eat that, that part of the body. It's because that part of the body was damaged when Yaakov, remember Yaakov's other name is Israel, Israel, which means that he was sort of like the embodiment of the entire Jewish people. When he was wrestling with the angel of Esav, you know, which was a force of negativity, Esav injured that aspect of him, which means that that was a sign for future generations that we would sort of bear the pain of exile. And so if you're eating, by the way, filet mignon is, is famous. That cut of meat is famous for having the sciatic nerve in it. Um, so um, if you're not at a place yet where you don't fully keep kosher, at least don't eat filet mignon, right? Because the idea is, the idea is that you don't want to be having enjoyment from the, the destruction of the Jewish people, right? Because that's the, that's the correlation there, okay? So, um, so hopefully that explains that point. Astrology. And um, it's so funny because there's, there's such an appeal in the way I work. Yeah. Uh, I work in Ayurveda and it's very much like readings are a huge part of, um, of the tradition and culture. Um, so as Jews, we we are not to seek that kind of advice because it will concretize. Like, is it that we mentally, by knowing these, because it's not so much that it's not true. There isn't truth in the star. Like, there is very much a, a truthful thing. Right. Look, right. So, um, right. by seeking that kind of advice, we we manifest it. Is that what? That, that's one of the elements of it. I mean, again, the simplest level is God just wants you not to know and designed the unfolding of time just in terms of like the, the quantum physics of it 
in a way that you can't know. And God did that on purpose because he doesn't want you to know so that you will develop a very trusting, close relationship with God. That, that's the simplicity of it. Now you get into sort of like finer points of what could go wrong if you do engage in that. And if someone tells you, um, don't do a certain thing or, or whatever it is, then maybe you would have done that. And maybe you would have done that in a way that could have turned out well. But now you've decided that he said, I'm not going to, I shouldn't do it because that's what the future holds. Now I'm not going to do it. Now you have created a reality that didn't have to exist. And now you've cut off an option, which could have been a good option, theoretically, because you don't really know what God had in mind. You just went to some joker who's telling you your future. You know what I mean? So, so while astrology can be like a, a really interesting predictor, that's not true on the newspaper level. This is really, you know, when, when it says, I'd, here's if you're a Gemini, and, you know, now I'm going to speak to a billion different people for, like, everyone born this, you know, it's silly. It's silly, because if you, if you, if you take astrology seriously, you know that they have to know the moment that you were born and customize a chart which is absolutely hyper-specific to you which is not available in newspaper or, 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 or magazines or, or, or things like that. And then even then, if they're on the, the, the level of having that level of precision, who says that they're getting it right anyway? Right. And, and you then have the ability to take whatever they would have said at that moment in your life and transform it to something else. So, so for instance, the famous example in the Torah is that... Um, that Paro says to Moshe, don't bring the, 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 the Jewish, or, or rather, the, that, that's another example, but let me use this one instead. That when, when um, the, the advisors of uh, Paro say, you know, a redeemer is going to be born among the Jewish people and his weakness is going to be water. Therefore, drown all the babies. Right? Now, they, they try to get rid of Moshe that way. And they killed a lot of people. By the way, Egyptians too, not just Jews. They killed a lot of Egyptians at that moment too. Um, Moshe escaped it because it was God's dest it was his destiny. God w wanted him obviously to survive. So it didn't work. Not only that, but they were right and they were wrong at the same time. Mo water does become his undoing because he's supposed to speak to the rock, but instead he hits the rock. The water does come out, but because of that, Moshe's told, basically, you're going to die and you're not going to go into Israel. So, so they were right. It was water. But they were wrong ab about everything else. So, so, even, so that's pretty amazing that they were right about water. I mean, it could have been anything. You know, think about it, you know. So, so, so in other words, like my, my grandfather used to say, smart, smart, stupid. There, there's, there's certain mistakes that only incredibly smart people are eligible to make. <laughs> you have to be smart, then you have to be smart again, then you can be stupid. <laughs> the bottom line is you still get it wrong, but you were very smart to get that wrong. <laughs> right? So astrologers can, can arrive at the idea of water being his undoing, which is amazing that they got that, and they were still wrong. Right? So, you know, it's... 
the you always have to do a what, what on Wall Street they call a cost-benefit analysis. You have to you have to say what is my actually Pierre Calvos talks about it too. What is my benefit from hearing from this magician, whether he's a palm reader or whether he's a tarot card reader or whether he's a psychic or whether he's an astrologer? What is what is the benefit that I get from that versus what is the negative cost that I get from that? Because ultimately, this person is not a prophet. He's not a prophet. He might actually be psychic. He might actually have some kind of gift, but that doesn't mean he's going to be right every single time. In fact, he absolutely is not going to be right every single time, because I'll tell you why. Because otherwise, he'd be rich, and he wouldn't be doing this. Right? I promise you. I promise you. He would have been like, oh, I'll just invest in this penny stock, and tomorrow I'll have a billion dollars. And then I'm going to sit by the pool. What do I have to meet with those jokers on Pico for? Right? Like, I got better things to do. I got money to spend. You know? You know, so, so these psychics are not as great as you think they are. And then you're gambling your soul for something that maybe they're going to be right? Maybe? Like, in terms of cost-benefit analysis, and then you're going to pay them to be wrong? That's my money. <laughs> Give you my money for you to tell me something that may or may not be right and may damage me? Forget it. And then, keep in mind, if you have a um, taiva, it's like a, like a strong desire to go to them, and you don't, that's a huge mitzvah. So then God blesses you that whatever, whatever, whatever your future is, you now have this extra merit, which was very hard for you to do, and now you have very positive energy coming your way. So it, you, 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 you actually become the immediate beneficiary of not going as well, right? And, and just to, hopefully not to beat a dead horse here, but just to make one more point, Something can be true for someone, th someone at one moment, and because they do tshuva, or they do a, a big mitzvah, it's not true for them the next moment. So even in a case where they say, see something and they see accurately, who says the you that's going to exist a day from now or a week from now is that same you that got that, tele that, that reading a week ago? You yourself are different. So once you're different, you have a different destiny. So it's, not, it's no longer relevant to you. You see? So the greatest way to ensure a great future for yourself is to do mitzvahs in a beautiful way, from a place of love. And then you win no matter what. You win no matter what. Oh, you taped that? I taped that, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so... Little, I'm not sure how to ask this question exactly, but um, Reb Nachman talked about uh, simcha a lot, being always being right. simcha, doing right. everything you know from a place of simcha. Right. And I'm wondering how we can uh, balance out this uh, this need in reality to destroy and you know fight evil, basically go to war, you know, rarely even even for peace sometimes with this like with this deal with everything in a, in a form of simcha because I right. imagine that. Everything on the micro macro level they right. reflect each other, so right. to some degree we have to internalize yeah. the warlike element. Yeah. So I, I've never been in the army, so I, I don't want to 
pretend to speak too authoritatively about it. Um, um, but, you know, war obviously is very scary. Um, and, you know, there's, I, I heard Rabbi Grossman from Yeshiva Gedola here make a point one time. If you read in the Torah, it says, when you go out to war, don't be afraid. And he, he raises a great point. How can you be in a foxhole with, like, you know, bullets whistling over your head or bombs exploding or whatever it is and not be afraid? And he said, the only way, and you say to yourself, you're in that situation, maybe. Well, we shouldn't be in that situation, but, but imagine a person in that situation. And they say, oh, it says in the Torah, I'm not supposed to be afraid. You know, good luck. Good luck at that moment, you know. So he said, the only way that you can keep that mitzvah is to prepare before that it happens to you. In other words, if you imbue yourself with strength and with joy and with, and with faith, then when a challenging situation like that, like war happens, you at least have a fighting chance to get through it in, in, in a place of simcha. You, you at least have a fighting chance. But it has to take place beforehand. You know, not in the moment. And, uh, you know, there, but, but it would be hard. How do you, how do you go to war, Basimcha? You know, there, there's a Pasuk that's often quoted. We say it every day in the prayers. And I have a, a personal drusha on it. It says, Yivdu es Hashem Basimcha which means, ivdu means serve, right? So serve God with joy. But ivdu comes from the word avoda, and avoda means work also. And so, you know, in different times in my life that have been challenging, I've, I've, I've darshaned it a different way. Ivdu es Hashem Pesimcha could also mean it's work to serve God with joy. In other words, it's hard work. It's not always easy to do it. You know, like a lot of people from the outside very superficially think, oh, that's a happy person. They just, at birth, they just got the happy switch turned on and then they just, and now they're on their happy trip and I hate them so much, you know, whatever it is, you know. And it's sort of like people who are serious and who are serious about this path, it's not easy. It's not like a switch is just pulled on. It's not easy. There are challenges. And people who take it seriously, they dig down deep within themselves and they really do it as an act of avoda. And it's work to, to stay in that positive place. And, 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 and so, you know, should there be a, a case where a person would have to go to war, I would imagine that it would be work to be, to stay in a, in a positive place in that situation. Yeah. I wanted to ask something on Fabian's question that sometimes we have we have this like concept like you know Tishba we're supposed to be sad, but this perhaps like the simcha of what the sadness is is the fact that we're we're doing it. Like it's simcha isn't necessarily happiness. It's not necessarily joy. Yes, that's how we translate it in English. But I think simcha is this understanding of something so much greater than what it is that we're seeing. Is that something that you would you would agree upon that it's totally, like this yeah. ultimate understanding and this kind of relief? Yeah, yeah. There's an intellectual component to simcha, and there's an emotional uh, level to 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 joy, to happiness, and the the joy aspect on the emotional level we all know, but the intellectual level is 
by um, contextualizing things. In other words, like they say, you know, even if you're having a bad day, there were probably in that 24 hours, probably a lot of good moments in that, in that bad day, mm-hmm. right? Like, even if you think your life is a shambles, if, I, if you actually went to an accountant who did an audit of your life, they could probably find a lot of really good things going on in your life, you know? And so, they're, they're, when one has a broader appreciation and a more, you see, see, the greatness of Simcha, or one aspect of it, and this is why a prophet, before one of the um, conditions of prophecy, before a person could sort of like tap into the Shekhinah and, and, and bring down and utter the word of God, they had to be in a state of joy. This is, by the way, why Isaac, why Yitzchak tells Esav, or he thinks it's Esav at the time, to go and get him his favorite meal. Like, you know, who is like all of a sudden, like Isaac is a gourmet? This is how we know Isaac as? Oh yeah, Isaac, you know, let me tell you about, you know, he had really, you know. You know, it's not, it's not that. Isaac Yitzchak did that in order he should eat his favorite food that was like, and that was, that was avoda. That was, that was divine service to get him to this really super expansive place of, of joy, right? And what, what joy does for us and what sadness does the opposite for us. Sadness gives us tunnel vision. Sadness collapses our consciousness onto the single point of what's going wrong in our life. So that all that we see is the, the, the negativity. And joy expands our consciousness and allows us to see all the good things that are happening, even if they're also bummers going on. And all that has ever great stuff has ever happened in my life that, you know, you, you never stop thanking God for all the good things that happened in your life, even if it was just because it happened a year ago or five years ago or, 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 or more, right? Right? It's not like there's a statute of limitations. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I already thanked you for that, didn't I? <laughs> my bad. You can never stop thanking God for whatever it is, you know? So joy expands your mind and gives you a big picture. And as such, it limits the, neg- the, the negative point. You know what I mean? And allows you not to completely focus on it. So, so that's the intellectual level, which also has an emotional component and, 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 and an aspect to the greatness of being besimcha. That's why the Hasidim, like people don't really understand. That's why the Hasidim are so focused on simcha and happiness because it's a, it's a coping mechanism, and it's a, it's a, it's a way to um, make yourself a vessel for, for the divine. You know what I mean? It's not just a matter of, hey, I'm happy. It's, it's so much more than that. It's way deeper than that. Yeah. Oh, wait, I, we, we're going to go. Oh, can yeah. we take that too? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so, you know Amuna. So, because uh, you talked about mitzvahs and how like they can be frictionless, whatever, like in your talk. Um, is, so, can you make a correlation between what you said and something she told me, which is you never know which mitzvah will save your life. Yeah. So, like when you were talking right. about the yeah. frictionless, I, yeah. I feel like there's a connection. There is absolutely a connection because because. We don't know, and, and in terms of like I was talking about the, the surprising aspect of how time unfolds, right, and the three examples that we focused in on just from this week's Parsha, you don't know what, how things manifest. So you don't know what mitzvah could save your life. You really don't know. 
And, 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 and those things which might seem like a small thing that you did, or whatever it is, or even you forgot about it, stay in the picture and stay relevant because of the frictionless environment. So, so, so it really hits on two aspects of what we were talking about. One, there could be a very surprising correlation between that and your own salvation, right? And two, it always stays relevant and always stays in the picture. 